This is the Business of Apps podcast, bringing you actionable insights from the leaders of the global app industry and the world's fastest growing apps. You can find more app news, data and analysis over at businessofapps.com. Welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. On this show, we invite app industry professionals to cover various topics. We promise to do our best to keep it both insightful but brief. In this episode, we have Fabian Pierre-Nicolas, advisor of Smart News. Fabian, welcome to the Business of Us podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming. All right. If you are a marketer, one of the things at your job that raises your pulse and eyebrows is a mobile chore. This is the KPI that measures the percentage of users who have abandoned your app. The logic goes, the smaller the number, the better. But unfortunately, in real life, this number always bigger than you would want it to be. So people leave apps, in some cases due to some glitches, but in some cases because their interests change. From a technical perspective, the app may be fine, but it just doesn't deliver the experience they need. In this episode, Fabian will tell us the story of chasing app users' interests that, that are changing rapidly. But first, let's kick off the conversation with talking about you, Fabian. Please tell us about your background. So my background has been essentially initially in gaming. I started at Ubisoft, which is a well-known you know, console and PC publisher uh, in France, then transferred to the US. And fast forward a few years, I realized a lot of people were coming to Focus Group to discuss their favorite games and bringing smartphones and mm-hmm. playing on their phones. So I was like, mm, it's time to follow where the consumers are going, which is they're going to play more and more on their phone. So I decided to join a company named DNA, which was a Japanese mobile gaming giant and uh, started publishing a lot of games. And uh, luckily, with my team, we um, had like some amazing games, including Marvel War of Heroes, uh, that made it to number one top grossing in the US. So we scaled the business a lot. After that, I joined Data AI, which is a mobile market data vendor for a few years. And finally, I joined Smart News, which is a mission-driven company. So Smart News is all about providing quality information. More recently, that's why I'm just an advisor at Smart News, I decided diversity and inclusion was a great way to make an impact and something we're not working enough on. And so I decided to join a friend of mine who started a software as a service platform that aim at helping businesses change on key topics like racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on and helping them transform the bias we'll have when we're looking at people who are different. And so this is what I'm currently working on. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know that your work with Japanese-based company now is not the first one. I thought Smart News was the first entry to the Japanese market. It's actually yeah. No, exactly. I think, you know, um, at the end of the day, when it comes to mobile games, the Japanese uh, mobile gaming scene, they were the first one to really realize the monetization potential. And it was even before the smartphone era, right? It was yeah. the feature phone era. They're mm-hmm. able to excel at monetization loop. And when it comes to mobile apps, um, I will say, you know, certain like Japanese app makers have really excelled in different categories, whether it's, of course, anime, manga, reading, uh, but as well in terms of news discovery. Uh, Smart News was the first one to really leverage machine learning technology when it comes to yeah. news aggregation product. By comparison, a lot of the Western products 
you know, Apple News, uh, for example, or Flipboard, which was sort of the, you know, first to market in the West, uh, we're still relying on human creation, which of course provides a bias when machine learning could essentially, uh, in my opinion, at least provide a superior user experience. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. Uh, it's hard to, you know, um, remember the market before the, you know, smartphone era, that back in those days, the games, uh, like how, how the, the landscape of that market and the Japanese uh, developers were really uh, big innovators on that frontier. Um, now, to be honest, before I saw your presentation at APS New York City this spring, I didn't hear about smart news. Uh, I should confess I'm an uh, Apple News <laughs> user, I guess that's the reason why I'm stuck with the one app and I have no idea what's going on with the news aggregators overall. I used to be a Flipboard user, and before that, there was another app. I just don't remember that name, but they were purchased for by somebody. But these days, is for me, it's at least Apple News. So please uh, forgive me my ignorance. Tell me about Smart News. Why it's smart? Yeah, well, first of all, you know you're forgiven because Smart News is really focused on Japan and the U.S. So, you know, if you're in in many uh, European countries, Smart News is currently not available in the App Store for those users. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we've made this decision like a few years ago. So again, <laughs> no no harm done there. Uh, when it comes to Smart News, uh, Smart News is on a mission, right? It's a mission driven company, and it's here to provide quality information where social products especially but as well some of the news app you've, you've described tend to um, you know recommend news just based on on your habits and essentially your interests we want to make sure of course we tailor some of the articles you're seeing uh, to your interest but as well that we're providing you quality information that everybody should get, engage with and I think this is, you know, a differentiating factor for smart news is the fact of being a mission-driven company, not just purely a mission to say, hey, we take content from everywhere, we deliver to you in function of the click-through rate. We look at a lot of quality index in our machine learning. Um, you know, at the end of the day, smart news is number one by far in Japan when it comes to news consumption, right? Uh, we're about four times bigger than our nearest competitor. Um, and... In the US, I think we, we are already on the podium. Uh, so there is Apple News that's bigger than us on iOS and, and Google News on Android, but we're in the top three. We're bigger than products like CNN, New York Times, Fox News, and many other well-known uh, apps right, that are in the market. And of course, Flipboard as well. I should mention it since you, you were a former user of Flipboard. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is no doubt we've convinced uh, you know, a really large number of US users that we are here to provide them quality information and they've embraced it and they love it. And our time is much higher than the rest of the app in the category, which showed that as well our machine learning is much better at providing you quality information and not clickbait. Well, that's interesting. So you're, you're uh, you can say conquer two markets by now, Japanese and American one. Can you see any familiarity, any similar uh, trends, how people use the new uh, the app, uh, just from the top of your head, some general um, conclusions, general um, observations, you know, yeah. do, they, do they check, you know, small chunks of usage throughout the day or on the weekend, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's definitely some peaks that, that correspond that exist essentially in, in both countries, right? So typically, I think a lot of people are consuming news 
uh, in morning time, you know, just as you wake up, you want to engage right. with the world and you want to catch up with what happened, might, might have happened while you are asleep. And right. there is uh, as well a phenomenon of consumption right before going to bed. You know, it's like the end of your work day, you're finished essentially, uh, and you would like to as well sort of, you know, catch what, up with everything that happens? happened during right. your yeah, during your work time. I think the one difference we're seeing is, you know, Americans tend to be a little bit more um, flat during the day, you know, consume at, at different times. So There's a lot of time zone difference, right? That exists in the US, that doesn't exist in Japan. Right. Versus Japan, right. we have a really big consumption around lunchtime. Before, as you, I, you know, a lot of Japanese are uh, getting lunch out, outside, right? They go and walk to a convenience store or restaurant to buy their lunch. So a lot of time when they're in line, they're reading the news. And after they're getting their lunch, you know, uh, you have a lot of people this, not necessarily being in a group of people, but rather like eating quickly their lunch. They are consuming the news at this time. This is not something we're seeing in the U.S. market, for example. Oh, that's interesting difference. And we have to remember, the, you know, just uh, pure geography. The Japan is a country way smaller than the U.S. and it doesn't have that many time zones, right? So in U.S. you would expect people having you know, breakfast in four or five different times. In Japan, they will be way smaller. Want to improve your app marketing skills? Know how to fight back mobile fraud? Or how to launch an influencer marketing campaign? You've got it all at the Business of Apps Insights. Opinion, how-tos, thought leadership, and analysis from global app and social media industry. Visit our insights section at businessofapps.com slash insights slash podcast. And now, back to the show. Uh, now, in New York, you took the stage to talk about, uh, about several steps uh, you made to introduce consumer-driven innovation culture to the app's existing product-driven innovation culture. So before laying out those steps for our listeners, let's, let's define the terms first. So what is product versus innovation-driven culture? And why you decided such introduction was necessary? Yeah. Well, so I think a, a good way to approach it, and, and again, we did not you know, give up on a, a product uh, innovation culture, right? We just simply added uh, more consumer-driven innovation culture. So the way I will define, you know, product-driven innovation culture is, and uh, in, in this is, you know, the root of smart news is you have like super bright founders. They are in, really in touch with, you know, the largest target audience that they intend to serve. And they have such great knowledge of this audience that they almost like don't need to do too much consumer research, uh, too much market segmentation and so on. They're capable of inherently having the, the right intuition uh, and to build for it. Uh, and I think, you know, such a product-driven innovation culture, sort of like the capability to read into the future of what your user will want, even if they don't know it yet, is, is amazing. And that's something, you know, we return to this day where we had, for example, our CEO say, hey, you know, whether, I'm sort of frustrated with the way weather is approached right now, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of this static way of looking at the weather forecast. I would like to see, you know, a, a much more dynamic approach. And so, you know, there's a rain alert and, and weather radar that was built using external data, but as well really providing a unique user experience that provides a great deal of value and, and is a huge hit with our Japanese users. So that's the product-driven innovation culture. And on the other end, and especially when it comes to a country like America, that's like extremely diverse. Um, you know, you look at many different segments of users, um, walks of life, you know, 
age, uh, origins, and so on. I think there's something extremely important, which is at some point, productivity-driven innovation isn't enough or you can't have enough people in touch with those different segments. So as a result, you need to go to a consumer-driven innovation culture where your first step is essentially understanding the way the market is being segmented and listening to those different segments really closely, how they react to your product, what is their life expectation, what is their frustration and pain points in their lives, and then you could essentially build for them. And uh, I could go later into like some examples of that, but you know, this is inherently the way I will define product-driven innovation versus consumer-driven innovation. Got you. So over and over in the podcast, uh, you know, the answers that my guests are giving to me kind of uh, uh, reminds me about the major concept in the marketing, know your customer. Um, and which um, implies know the culture of the country where those customers uh, are located. And um, if it's more monoculture, like uh, you know, in Asia, less diverse, this is the one expectations, one kind of a mindset. If you're moving to the other market, to the other country, we're more diverse in terms of different cultures, different expectations. And all these people are your app users, you need to be able to tune in your app to each of these segments and uh, factoring in interests of all these peoples, all these different cultures. Yeah, that's that's still a great point. Now, uh, let's let's start to talking about those points you laid out in New York, starting with the number one segmentation. So, why you thought that step was necessary, and what did it involve? Yeah, well, I think you know. Um... It, I will probably compare it to you have a dartboard, right? And, and so essentially your marketing budget is to say, hey, um, where should I throw my dart and who should I aim this budget at, right? And so until you figure out what the, your user map is and um, the user segments that might have a stronger appeal, otherwise you will be extremely inefficient, right? You will try to aim for many, many targets without knowing what makes them react. Uh, and could they, are they extremely interested or not so much in your product? Um, so drawing this map of the different consumer segments and then being um, thoughtful about selecting them. And of course, then about building, you know, a plan to essentially win them over to your product versus, you know, the competition. It's a very competitive space, as you know. Um, is why I think you know starting with with consumer segmentation matters. Um, that's the intellectual part of the answer. I think there is a, a deeper um, reason why I think it's extremely important if you're leading growth or marketing in in a mobile app team, and especially in a market as diverse as the U.S. We all have, as I discussed, right about diversity and inclusion biased. The same bias apply because we do typically belong to a segment and potentially to a segment that is, you know, uh, targeted by the product and the company we choose to join. Okay. And so to abstract yourself and be like, whoa, sure, I am in this segment. So in my uh, specific case, I'm in the you know, plugged in professional, which is one of our three segments. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, should I target myself? Maybe, maybe not, right? So taking this step where you're uh, building the consumer segmentation, uh, assessing the size of each segment, the appeal of your product, 
the appeal of your competition, right, for each of those segments is extremely important. So you abstract yourself from your own bias and from your team's bias as well, right? <laughs> because we might all belong to the same segment. And again, um, it is very dangerous to have tunnel vision. Hopefully not. I you know, always try to hire people from diverse background uh, and, and make sure precisely we don't all come from the same company, from the same industry. But still, right, we, we might all be in New York and San Francisco, uh, might all belong to a certain like age group or age categories. And so as a result, we, we all bring sort of similarities of perspective that could be dangerous in terms of, of building the best efficiency for the business. Yeah, I, I totally understand that it's, it can be extremely hard to be able to have a team that represents all segments of your app. Uh, next to impossible, you would have to hire people in specific regions, states, or parts of the country. Uh, but it's not like you know, feasible in the real business. Uh, you have to grow first, then make more money, allocate some certain budgets to grow your team. All, not, not all the way around. You cannot hire people first and then grow. But um, yeah, that's 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 really um, important point to keep in mind when you're approaching the market. That people who are working with you in your team, not necessarily, most likely, do not represent the audience of your app. The, you, you have most likely you may have a kind of a, you know the same mindset. Uh, or close mindset. That's why you have such a great team working on a single project. Now, let's move to the next step, which was deciding on uh, specific segments. So which ones you pick up to scale and why you did you choose those? Yeah, so it's a great question. So out of the six segments we saw in the market, you know, we really uh, pick segments that had essentially uh, medium high to high intent to download when we describe what our product was. Um, we pick as well those three segments because comparatively speaking, they, they add like clear pain points versus some of the existing offering in the market. You know, it's always easier uh, when people are at somewhat of frustration with what's available to actually convince them to try your product. Uh, and the third aspect is we look at the trust. Trust is a key currency when it comes to news. Why? <laughs> because precisely we're trying to provide quality information news is information and um, it's only if you're capable of sort of like trusting products that are not the brand names that are not new york time or fox news and so on um, but to say hey those people are providing me a diverse set of news sources a little bit like you know a convenience store or supermarket will provide you a diverse set of brands right okay. uh, but you need to as well say i could put my trust in something that is not not a known entity at the moment, mm -hmm. right? And so that was the, the third dimensions we consider beyond their frustration with existing offering and intent to download smart news. That resulted in us picking three segments. Uh, I will start with you know the largest of those three segments, which we call settled suburbanite. So their average age is in the, their 50s. So that spawns, you know, goes all the way from low 40s to you know, their 70s. Mm -hmm. They're typically not living in the city. That's why they're suburbanite, but they're not living in the right. countryside either, right? They're in between. Uh, they are very diverse, politically speaking, right? They, there is a, an equivalent amount that are conservative, liberal, or I will say in between. Yeah. Um, and again, very large segment, still consume TV, linear TV and cable TV, you know, pretty heavily. 
uh, and um, you know is still very engaged with Facebook. <laughs> They're a little bit older, right? Um, now the second segment um, that we you know targeted is called culture connector. Uh, again, typically mostly suburban, not necessarily living downtown. Extremely diverse in terms of ethnicity. Um, there as well, um, you know, several suburbanites still at politics and, and world news in their top bucket. Culture connectors are really of diverse interest, but politics is, you know, one of the five or six things they are following. They are looking at entertainment news. Uh, they are looking at culture news, art news, uh, you know, many different things. That's why they are culture, right? <laughs> they, yeah. They're essentially interested in many dimensions uh, of life. Uh, the age is, is younger. Uh, they are in their mid 30s in, in, in the average and, and span all the way to low 20s up to uh, mid 40s uh, and diverse, as I said. And the last one is, you know, and, and they are skewing female somewhat. And last one is plugged in professional, skewing male, really tech forward, really urban. So think New York, San Francisco, LA, and so on. It's the smallest of the three segments, but we have been extremely successful pretty quickly at acquiring them. Uh, they're really influential over their peers, right? They're really vocal online. They are the one you will meet on Twitter, always tweeting away and expressing opinions. Right. Um, and typically they are not on Facebook. They are not watching TV except for very specific live sports or live political events. Like that's why we advertise the democratic debates, for example, to reach them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, politically, they're just because they are living in the city and they are tech forward. You know, some people might be like, of course, they're all liberal. No, actually, they are as well politically diverse. And that's one thing that I want to keep from two of the three segments that are more like, I will say, politically active and engaged is that, you know, approaching it with the bias to be like, okay, you know, we're news and so on, let's, let's go and target liberal audience will have been the wrong idea. And so we always stay in our communication saying news from all sides, we advertise as much in Fox News as we advertise in CNN or MSNBC. Uh, and from our perspective, we always make sure that our creative are extremely, um, you know, even when they cover politics, that they are presenting both perspective. It's really in the core DNA of smart news to not pass judgment of what's right or wrong. Empower instead of users to essentially analyze and, and provide them with quality information, allow them to essentially make the decisions themselves, not judge. Right. Well, that's that's a great point. You are a news aggregator. You're not should be leaning towards the you know democratic or a conservative uh, part. Um, always uh, you know keep in mind that your readers are in the in both camps and in the middle you're say a centric part. Yeah. Switching on product marketing alignment. Uh, why do you think it was important for the app to be released uh, successful in the United States? It's a great question. I think very simply, the U.S., you know, uh, is both a place where our, our, where our mission really need to, needed to be expressed. I mean, when it comes to quality information, I think our founders saw the election um, of 2016 uh, or even 2012, and they saw the, the rising dangers of social media. I think that was well illustrated with, with the interaction of January 6th. Yeah. Um, how much people could essentially end up believing things that are uh, not facts, right? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and how much the distrust of, of news uh, became really important because of social media. Um, so 
First, the mission, why does it matter to, to be scaled in the US and really successfully? The second aspect is, I think, uh, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's great sharing this podcast. I think there is a, a true passion and interest from both our co-founders uh, for, uh, for the US, a true admiration for Google company culture and, and a few other Silicon Valley uh, companies. And you know, the ancestor of, of Smart News before they pivoted away to building a news app um, was presented at South by Southwest. So the origin story of Smart News yeah, right. itself was, you know, when the both of them took a plane from Tokyo to South by Southwest to, to present this prototype. Um, the prototype wasn't very successful at South by Southwest, but nevertheless, I think it forged for them this willingness to go in the US and engage with, with the world's largest market. And the third part is, is business as well, right? There is uh, We are monetizing with ads for now. 100% of our revenue is, is ad-driven. And from a size of the ad market compared to Japan, where we're already, you know, market leader, um, the U.S. is about 10x, right? So you could aggregate a lot of Europe, and you will still be a fraction of the U.S. market um, when it comes to advertising demand, and especially mobile advertising demand, right? Where the U.S. was sort of first to, to really push, and in um, you know the demand is is really important. So for all those three reasons, the mission, I will say the passion of our co-founders and the business, that's why it mattered to, to be scaled in the US. Gotcha, Fabian. Um, next step on your list was uh, all about adaptation. Um, I know it's kind of hard to advise on uh, this step because it involves the you know, apps team and mindset to be able to adapt quickly or not. But what would you suggest strategically? Well, yeah, it's, you know, at the end of the day, the adaptation, I believe, and especially as we're heading towards a more uncertain time, this time it's not, you know, a pandemic that's upending our lives, but it's very likely that there will be at least strong economic uncertainty in the coming months in Europe, in the US, in, in Asia. Um, my two cents is you could either be um, sort of sticking to your guns, sticking to your plan, and considering that your insights from you know a few months ago or or a few weeks ago Irrelevant, are still right. valid, mm -hmm. or be extremely reactive to the change in the landscape. In this specific case, when we saw what was happening, right when. Um, COVID became a global pandemic, which is a, a local pandemic in China. Uh, we adapted fast. We say, okay, this is becoming number one worries people have is like, you know, what's happening and giving them access to metrics about their local communities in Japan and the US matters. Uh, when Ukraine conflict happened, same thing. And, you know, when George Floyd protests happened, same yeah. thing, right? So for me, building this muscle will make the difference between businesses who are sort of first to, who are not reacting fast enough. And as a result, you know, ultimately they end up losing on markets and having to cut headcount pretty significantly. And those who, because they react, because they adapt, they're able to thrive. And as well, you know, not essentially part ways with great individuals that they have spent a lot of time and money hiring. Uh, which is what's happening right in some of the companies right. that haven't been sort of being proactive uh, as a result they are reactive and it's never great to be just reactive especially if you're a tech company yeah that's that's not the way you'll be able to compete with others in your market segment 
you have to listen very carefully uh, to the market, to what's going on with your users, what's going on with your competitors, uh, the overall market trends, uh, especially, uh, you know, that that that, that level of um, overall uh, bird view uh, insight that if any or now called data AI can provide. So getting back to the one of your former employers, we can give you a bird view on, on the market. On the app industry, and now moving on to the next step, which essentially is about the importance of having the right technology stack. Well, what what we're not human, we're not superhumans. We to just still regular human beings. We need technology in our hands to be able to uh, manage complex uh, tasks that are not just feasible to do manually. So what kind of technology stack uh, do you have to get on board and stuff to support it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, there there is a, a changing landscape um, in, in, you know, every, this answer could essentially change, right? Every six to nine months. Um, I think from my perspective, it's about assessing art, a certain point in the life of your company and now i'm in super early stage you know pre-funding mm -hmm. um truly the tools and automation that will make your overall unit economics and and, and you know more efficient on one end mm -hmm. or save you a lot of time on the other end for me it's like you know the there's the money part right and there is the yeah. time part and both of them are really precious in in this day and age so speaking for a smart new stack, um, of course, you know, um, it, uh, one of the first steps I took when I joined the US side was to assess if we had tools to monitor what, you know, the market was. And, and coming from that AI, of course, you know, um, I essentially look at different mobile market data tools, assess the quality of the data for the US market, and then selected a product. It happened to be that at that time, that AI was the best product. Um, you know, we, we are using another vendor, uh, Nielsen for Japan, uh, historically speaking. Uh -huh. And so again, because of, of the, what, what was the best data available at that time for the Japanese market. Um, for me, you know, understanding sort of where, what the competition was, where they're more on the, you know, bigger on Android versus iOS. And in this specific case, you know, that AI gave us the insight that, there was a lot more market potential on Android versus iOS. We were the only news aggregation app that was bigger on iOS versus Android. Um, and so we decided to you know, scale and now 75% for US users are Android. The second step is again, um, you could do a lot of ad hoc research for consumer. And I think sometimes it's needed. Uh, sometimes you do need like specific sample and you need to find specific vendors really good at this specific type of users that you're trying to investigate. But I think having um, trusted vendors of record that you're using, putting in place, for example, in our case, every three months in, in the US, every month in Japan, we measure the awareness, we measure the preference, is extremely important. And so if you know you're going to do it on an ongoing basis, because it matters to measure it on an ongoing basis for yourself and competition to see how the awareness preference is changing, then you need to essentially assess different vendors, have a good robust methodology in place and keep working the same one because you're saving time and you're saving money. So as I say, you know, those are two key dimensions. That's for the consumer. The third aspect is really the tech stack, right? The tech stack at the end of the day, um, 
I believe they used to be bigger gaps between vendors. I think at this point, when it comes to mobile attribution, well, first on iOS, there is a lot less incentive, right? To have a mobile attribution partner, you could still have them. And on the right side, from my perspective, I see two vendors, AppsFlyer and Adjust, which is now part of AppLovin, that are sort of like top of the market. Um, toward, and I tend to say, you know, it matters because they have such a higher density and number of clients. They are essentially able to build faster, iterate faster, adapt faster than, you know, smaller vendors. Um, and so I tend to say, hey, you know, it's good. Um, in terms of mobile engagement, I haven't worked in a while because we build everything in-house at Smart News. We build our own push tech um, technology because it's deeply embedded uh, with, you know, our machine learning technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, there is vendors out there such as uh, Braze or CleverTap and so on that provide solid solution, but you have to remember they're off the shelves, right? They are cross categories right. of the shelf. They're not custom to your specific vertical. So, but I think they are great once you're, you're at the beginning and you don't have a big machine learning team, a big you know, product team, they are definitely um, uh, meeting a need. There is a lot of other vendors, of course, right? Whether it's analytics and so on. Um, again, from my perspective, I think the field has, has um, matured. Uh, a lot of the, um, at this point, I think, you know, wh- whether it's, in terms of mediation layer for ads, um, in terms of, of you know analytics, I think things have matured. But at the end of the day, all those things are nothing without great experts behind them. And so always put and consider that tools without people <laughs> might not be uh, saving you that much money if they are not being leveraged. And so the way I will think about it is you could pick the best mobile market, you know, uh, data vendor, right? May that be sensor tower, data AI, you name it. If at the end of the day, you don't have a smart person behind it to essentially provide actionable recommendation, what's the point? Um, And so it is, I think, mission critical for you to really think about the architecture of the team and of the tech stack together and not separately. Because otherwise you end up, again, buying solutions or deploying something without having the people and the means to uh, leverage the spend um, you're making. And I'm selling SaaS now, right? So, <laughs> but again, it's, it's diversity and inclusion platform like ours. Right. If you do not have an HR director, a diversity and inclusion manager, or a, a diversity champion inside the company that is gonna be making sure that people connect with the platform is not right. useful. Right, just buying us without having someone that, that will make sure people are aware of it. So that's why I think it's very important to afford. Yeah, totally true. Uh, borrowing from Eastern philosophy, yin and yang, people and tools, you, ha- you always have to have both. Otherwise, it's just wasting of your money and effort. Uh, let's uh, cover the last step on your list, which was um, actually trying unusual things with the product and uh, to, you know, to increase engagement and revenue, that's not uh, what I think people are have guts or inspiration quite often to do because they're trying to stick to the product and to steps that are proven, tried before. Uh, but so what was your experience of trying unusual ideas for the smart news? Yeah, well, I think, you know, first I wanna give, you know, <laughs> give back to Caesar 
<laughs> credit or in this case you know my my former manager um Nishiguchi Sen is, is really brilliant man for Japan and again he, he really infuse our uh, Japanese teams with this uh, customer centricity and so the way he looked at it is to say hey when we look at all the segments of the Japanese market which segments are we under indexing especially when it comes to preference mm -hmm. and what do they want um you know it's not always right. So there was a few experiments that didn't work out, including you know, right. learning English. We build an English channel for Japan with the idea. It's like, hey, we could be considered sort of a, a proxy language learning tool right? by giving the exposure to written content. Mm -hmm. That didn't work. But on the other end, it did notice that um, we had a lot of non-Tokyo users, a lot of female users that were going out for lunch. And some of them were using smart news. Many of them were not using a news app. So thinking was like, hmm, we're under indexing for those users. They're definitely using and engaging their smartphone during lunch. How do we get them to start smart news? And then maybe read the news, but first get them to open the app. And that's where the lunch coupons concept was born. Uh, luckily, you know, he was as well someone with an incredible network <laughs> among executives for McDonald's, KFC, um, and, and different convenience store in, in Japanese local chains. And as a result, I think he, he had a two-in-one where he uncovered the right insights about those users, but as well, he had the capability to make sure that everyone uh, was aligned. And of course, you know, those chains were delighted to provide us exclusive coupons because at the end of the day, we're driving good traffic to them, right, through those promotions. And so as a result, you know, the app uh, exploded. And what is, you know, always fascinating, and I think where you could see great marketing is our existing users, but as well many users installed the app initially, of course, saying, hey, it's great, there's a lunch coupon, I'm going to save some money. Right. But they started reading the news, and they started reading the news more and more. And so as a result, we live up to our mission. So, you know, a lot of, you know, including within the company, initially there was skepticism. Oh, maybe those users are going to be not reading the news. So we're not living up to our mission. We're just giving them, you know, discounts. And this is where it is important to have consumer-driven innovation. It's a perfect example, right? If we're all in my team, be like, this is not news. We're not, you know, focusing. It. Right. Well, first of all, we're here to provide information. And information is broader than news, right, as a company. And second of all, again, different type of people and segments of users will need different reasons. Some people don't need any reasons. They are use news read, they are, they are really big in news reading, and then yes. that's fine, great. And uh, some people, they will need the reasons that, hey, I'm going to give you this balanced perspective about politics. And that's one thing we did for a US user, giving them the option to slide left to right and understand it, you know, um, how each side was perceiving the same news. And some people, they need to be told, hey, I'm going to save you some money. And, you know, it's extremely important, especially when you're of a lower available income or maybe you're supporting your entire family on one salary. You know, it is extremely important not to judge, but by contrast of, really listening to those users yeah that's a very interesting example of how you can attract people's attention thinking out of the box uh, what could be the starting point how can i um legit legitimately 
um, reasonably uh, pick up their attention uh, with something that is useful for them. And then they can jump on reading news because this is like, um, you know, what's going on around them uh, is something that is interesting for all of us. Like we're social creatures. It's just some people prefer the apps because they know about their existence. This is part of the routine. Some may have no idea that's that's actually possible. And you can lure these people to your brand by giving them something that is kind of an introduction. And it can be just like you're saying, coupons, something that it's kind of a different, but just like you're saying, this is the information about you know, financial uh, discounts and information about the, you know, the news in general. We're covering the set of topics uh, that you laid out in New York at APS. Uh, and uh, there's a actual second segment on the show when I'm asking quick questions every second guest on this show. Uh, and these are just quick ones. So here we go, question number one. What smartphone do you have now? Have you been switching between Android and iOS or just staying one cam all the time? I have a Samsung S10 Plus, which is about three years old. And I've been on Android since 2011. At that time, I got an iPhone stolen. I look at the price to get a new iPhone. And I was like, okay, no way. <laughs> and honestly, I never looked back. Um, the, the main reason for me uh, is A, I think the color quality of the Samsung screen is just amazing. And I'm very visual. I guess that's why I became a marketer. Uh, and B, I, I inherently love working with the Google team. I think the Google Play team has been amazing to work with. Google Ads team as well. I think as a company culture, they're extremely um, customer centric. Mm -hmm. Coming back to that. Yeah. And so that's another incentive for me to keep using Android as a, my main OS. Okay. What was your first mobile phone before the iPhone, before smartphone year? Okay. Um, oh, my very first one, well, I think in the 1997, I want to say. And it was Sagem, which is a French brand. Uh, and and uh, so it was a very big uh, I think they might be in some developing uh, countries still around, but don't, you know, don't quote me on that. Yeah. I just know that um, I was very excited. And then within six months, I actually uh, sat on it and broke the screen. So that was my first broken screen as well experience. Yeah, yeah, first broken screen. Yeah, it's always tough. Uh, now imagine today you left your smartphone at home. Uh, what would be the most missing feature for you when you're out? Well, I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at orienting myself. So it's not going to be Google Map. Uh, but I think there is a, there is a quality um, to, to, to my phone, which is like really filling the blanks with news and information. So I will honestly regret not being able to read the news. And it's really hard in many places, at least in, in France and the US to find actual newspaper. So probably reading the news. <laughs> yeah, there's no way you can replace it with the actual paper. Um, now, you know, nothing is perfect. Um, and well, technology included, uh, when you're looking at your smartphone, do you see anything that is missing for you right now? It could be hardware, software, or both. And you go like, wouldn't be great if that device being capable of doing this or that? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, there is some, some software available that's pretty imperfect. I really wish like sometimes uh, we had like a live translation 
you know, the I believe the Google earbuds and um, a few other devices were promising that. And um, unfortunately, I think the support for some specific language pairing that I needed, namely like Korean to French or Korean to English, wasn't available. Uh, my, my wife speaks to her parents in Korean. And mm -hmm. so sometimes I wish I could just listen ah, in. Would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I still wonder, I do remember what, about the, those earbuds that were providing the translation service on the fly, and um, right now it's just um, looks like they're gone from the market, never took off. But yeah, that would be really great to have them in your ears when you're in, somewhere in Asia and having a real translation all the time. Um, okay, before I let you go, and just a final question, how can people get in touch with you and get more information about what you do, Pierre? Yeah, well, LinkedIn all the way. I post updates at least two or three times per day about my, my thoughts about mobile app industry, about gaming, about diversity and inclusion, um, about some of the you know, political milestones that are happening in the US or in France. So go on LinkedIn, you could check those updates, but as well, you know, of course, add me and contact me. The only request is please, please give a bit of context because when I get, I think right now about 50 requests incoming. Oh and if I have no uh, you know, context whatsoever, why you want to connect uh, and we haven't met before, like Mark, right? I've met you. So right. it's like, I know if you, if you add me to LinkedIn, what, what the context is. Um, I, I tend to be you know, a bit selective. Otherwise, I think people should use the messaging feature, the email. Um, but not try to add me <laughs> as, as a prelude right. to a conversation. Out of the blue. All right. Thank you, Fabian, for coming on our podcast and spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Art. And that was Fabian Villar-Nicolas, advisor of Smart News. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Just search for Business of Apps and you will find us easily. We release episodes on Mondays, so subscribe and you'll be able to get new episodes on your smartphone, tablet, or computer as soon as we release them. And please don't forget to leave us a review or comment on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. And all episodes will also be available on businessofapps.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Business of Apps podcast. For more, head on over to businessofapps.com.